And he suggested we go down to the prison library and help prisoners who didn't know how to read, learn how to read. And I walked into this room where there were these men where you're supposed to show zero vulnerability, ask me for help because they couldn't read. And I showed up every day to help them. And what it turned out to be was me being of service to another human being for the first time in my life. I used to think what I did on Saturdays and Sundays was me being of service, but that's, that's not true at all. It's silly to think. Visa, a network working for everyone. Overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small business lead their teams to victory all year long. Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help grow their businesses and help them achieve even greater success. Because the more people we can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network working for everyone. Welcome back to Beyond the X's and O's, brought to you by Visa. Uh, today we sit down with Ryan Leaf, and before you go, okay, this is just going to be about all of this off-the-field struggles. It's not. In fact, it's really fun. The first half of this conversation, we get to talk about a, a really wild high school career and some adversity you faced, playing for a legendary coach uh, in Montana, some crazy recruiting stories. Uh his Heisman Trophy story where he talks about his dad doing something that I think uh, is super important to him but would make most of us cringe uh, because his dad was right there with all the other Heisman Trophy candidates and uh, and he gets to tell us a little bit about that. But then he does. He gets into the real stuff. He talks about the day he knew his career in the NFL ended. He talks about the day in prison where his life was forever changed. Uh, he talks about how, of all things, serving others is what brought him out of the pit of despair and has changed his life. Uh, you talk about transparency. Ryan Leaf gets about as transparent as you'll ever see an ex-professional athlete get. And it's all coming up next on Beyond the X's and O's. Well, let's jump right in with Ryan Leaf. So happy you're with us today, Ryan. Thanks for being here. What's up, buddy? How you doing? How you been? I'm doing great. I'm uh, swimming underwater half my life, trying to coach high school ball and do a podcast. But I love better man these... than me. <laughs> I love hearing these stories of the quarterback journey. That's why we started this show. And your journey is so unique. And I'm probably more excited to talk to you today than anybody because so many, of, so much of our audience is listening to learn and listening to relate. Uh, we have high school quarterbacks. We have coaches. We have dads, uh, and just I think the, the beauty of this podcast is I don't talk very much. I tee you up and let you guys go. So you can go anywhere you want with this. But I do want you to start with your high school journey. Uh, what was it like growing up in Montana, playing high school ball, CM Russell High School? Talk to us about your first touchdown pass, your first start, what Friday Night Lights were like. Uh, and I know there were some other dynamics there because you're actually not the most famous high school quarterback that played there. There was another guy. So talk about that as well. Yeah, uh, my hometown, really all about football. There was a generational uh, icon at coach. His name was Jack Johnson, had won many state championships. And, uh, you know, he, he had the uniform of the iconic Green Bay Packers, right? We wear the gold oh, pants yeah. and the green jerseys and the helmet. Instead of the G, it was an R for rustlers. And and it's all I ever wanted to be, right, and uh, and do well. So he he usually played a lot of older classmen. It was wasn't back in the day where you showed up as a freshman and you got a chance to play. You had to earn your earn your way on. And uh, I didn't actually play until like my or start until my third game of my my junior year. And um, I remember this very clearly because the morning newspaper. Uh, headline was that the rustlers have a new leaf on life and I had no idea what that meant and my dad had to explain to me what uh, a new lease on life was so I drive into school I come to my first stop sign take a right and I jump out to the far left lane because I saw a car coming that way and sure enough about you know 100 yards later I get pulled over by the police officer so the day of my first start in high school football I get a uh, a traffic citation uh, on my way to school. I remember that more clearly than anything. We, we won. We would go on and, and win uh, the entire year. We didn't throw the ball much. We were a veer option type of team. I was long and lanky and I could run the football, but also throw. I don't know if we threw more than 10, 15 times a game, 
but we were good enough to get to a state championship and beat an undefeated team for a, a state title. So uh, it's it's pretty memorable for me on how I started there, what it was meant. Um, I didn't know I was going to go anywhere or do anything in terms of playing football. I just knew I, I'd always wanted to be a, a wrestler and, and, and a starting quarterback at CMR. What was that offseason like? Because you're a dual sport athlete, so you're playing another sport. I want to get into that as well. But now you're the dude, right? Yeah. Uh, what was that offseason like for you? Um, for me, it was, you know, traveling all over the – you know, all over the, the country or not all the country, all over the countryside there in Montana playing basketball, really. Mm -hmm. But I started to get interest from universities around the football side of things. And so that was a bit surprising. And Jack Johnson, our head coach, brought me this pamphlet for a, a quarterback wide receiver camp that was being held down in Thousand Oaks. And this was a big deal, right? Uh, it was expensive for for us there. And, and so I brought it to my mom and dad and they said, uh, yeah, this is something I think we can do. So we loaded up the family station wagon like the uh, Griswolds, and, yeah. and away we went. You know, my two younger brothers and myself, my parents, and we drove from Great Falls, Montana, all the way down to Thousand Oaks, California, stopping in Las Vegas along the way. I remember going to medieval times and watching the jousting and, and all the things like that. And then we got down to the wide receiver quarterback camp and you know, I felt like a real fish out of water, to be honest with you, because this was really a lot about a thrower's camp, but I, I fit in pretty quickly. And before I knew it, I was far and away the, the best, you know, passer at the, at the camp. And sure enough, Jim Livengood, who was the athletic director at Washington State at the time, had brought his son down to compete in it. And they were staying at the same hotel with my parents and my mom and him started chatting because uh, I had not been approached by Washington State up to that point. And uh, I ended up, I think, getting MVP of the camp at, at, at the quarterback position, and, and, and I went back home. So that was about the gist of what I did in the offseason around football. Uh, it was about basketball all, all summer long, you know, hopping around to smaller towns, playing with buddies, playing pickup games on the Air Force Base against all the Jetters and things like that. Um, basketball was my was my main priority in my mind. I just didn't I didn't anticipate being able to go play college football. Uh, and then the season came to fruition and I got a recruiting letter about the beginning of August from Washington State University. And that's how kind of it all started. Wow. I want to get and we'll go back to the dual sport thing and how much you learned from being a hoopster as well. But talk to me what how many people are in the stands on a Friday night? Now you're going into your senior year, super high expectations. What was a Friday night like? Uh, at your high school? It was pretty neat. Uh, the, the whole town showed up for it, right? We played in a stadium that was uh, adjacent to the rival uh, high school. It was a, you know, community stadium. And so we would get prepared at our, our field house and then we'd board buses and take the bus trip across town. And that was always such a, such a, a neat deal. You know, you'd be, we'd be completely dressed in full uniform on the bus. And then when we get off, we would literally come off the back end of the bus or the front end and, and run into the stadium. And cool. the crowd was electric. Um, the, the nickname for our city is called the Electric City uh, because of all the, um, the water energy it produces with the, with the Great Falls. Uh, and, uh, and, and, the, and the place was electric. It always was. And we always had some great games. Um, and I remember going to games when I was a young kid, and especially as a freshman when I wasn't getting a chance to play varsity yet. The quarterback ahead of me there, who I grew up with just down the street, was was a star, and uh, and getting to come watch him. His name was Dave Dickinson, and that that was awfully fun. And now I was getting to experience it, and we were winning, right? We were we were a state championship defending football team, and I was this I was the star quarterback. So you go in the senior year, and, I, and I'm only framing this because there's so many kids that went into this season with these incredible expectations. They're unbreakable. Their teams are going to win every game. Nothing bad's going to happen. And sure enough, as you know, as well as anybody, football brings many times nothing but adversity. And you face some adversity. You get banged up. You hurt your thumb in your senior year. Uh, was this really the first time that your dreams have kind of been set back? You're getting recruited. Here you go to your senior year, defending state champs, and now – you break your thumb. What was that like? It's heartbreaking. I've never been injured before. You know, I rolled my ankle and things like that, but you know, I'd never been injured. And I remember we had just beat the number one team in the state and I'd played great. I'd thrown for three touchdowns and 
you know, 250 yards or something like that. And the next week during practice, it started to get cold out and snow. And sure enough, I came uh, defensive lineman got too close to me on a pass. And my thumb came down on his helmet, top of his oh. helmet. Oh. And uh, you know how that feels. Every quarterback has experienced that uh, at some point. And they took me to the doctor, the orthopedist, uh, saw that there was a fracture and they put a cast on me and that was hard, but I was told I would, would be back in time for the crosstown rival game. We were playing three teams during that span that weren't incredibly good. Um, our backup quarterback, his name was Jeff Hallett, um, uh, was itching for an opportunity. And I felt like he could do a, a decent enough job with the talent we had around him. And both games, uh, they struggled, right? They won by one point, I think, in the two games. And then in the third game uh, against a very poor Missoula team, he exploded and had a big game. I think we beat him like 49 to 14. And watching him have success pissed me off mm-hmm. because I'm like, I'm not losing my job in this. So I went into the doctor because I was supposed to, to check. They removed the cast. They did the x-ray. He came in with a really you know, sullen face and said, I'm sorry, Ryan, it just hasn't, it just hasn't healed enough. Um, so we're going to recast it and uh, we'll check it out in another three weeks, which meant that I would miss the re- entirety of the season and, and probably heading into the playoffs. And I was just so distraught. I went back to school and I remember sitting in my, I think it was geometry class and thinking, um, this isn't, this isn't how this is going to happen. <laughs> and it was back in the day where, you know, you could have your pocket knife at school with you. And I just took it out and I started cutting my cast off and wow. I, I cut all the way through it and got it off. And I walked down to practice that afternoon and our athletic trainer was my dad's offensive lineman in high school and friends. And so my dad remembers getting that call. He's like, John, Ryan's down here in my office. He's removed his cast and he's trying to practice. And so I don't know any of the behind the scenes stuff like my parents and health insurance. And just, I mean, the things that parents deal with that as a kid, you don't understand. You just impulsively say, I'm cutting off my cast and I'm going to play football. And I don't know how it worked. We brought to another orthopedist surgeon. He gave the go ahead. Okay. And I was back at practice the next day and uh, I got it taped up and I played the season out um, the rest of the year. I wasn't going to lose my job and I wasn't going to miss an opportunity to play uh, my last year of high school football. I didn't, I didn't do the math. I didn't understand. I just, I was, I wanted what I wanted and I wanted to play football. You think that resilience you showed there, toughness, whatever you want to call it, helped with your recruiting process at Washington State? You know, I don't know. I never asked the question to a lot of the coaches who recruited me, uh, and I was recruited by everybody uh, all over the country. If that was, I mean, no one even asked, like, for x-rays or things like that. You know who finally asked for the x-rays? At the Combine, the Chicago Bears asked for the x-rays of my thumb from high school. That's the first time that anybody actually asked about the thumb injury. Didn't really get those questions during the recruiting process. I was being wooed and like they wanted me. So away we went. Talk to me about the recruiting process. I mean, small town kid, you're getting recruited by everybody in the country. Uh, What was that like uh, for your identity? I'm sure that's a part of it, but just the celebration of your athletic career and and now having the realization that you're going to go play football at the next level. Uh, It was at first surprising. And then you realize what a small world it is. And there were a ton of Montana ties in terms of the recruiting process. First off, it was Dennis Erickson at the university of Miami. He played at Montana state for my head coach for my head coach in college, Jim Sweeney. Yep. And he, uh, married a Great Falls girl. Um, Sonny Lubeck had ties to my head coach and to Montana football at Colorado State, who was yep. a big recruiter. Yep. Brian Cabral at Colorado uh, had recruited a, a, a linebacker from, from CMR my freshman year who had been playing there throughout his career. He was a big recruiter. Um, and then Jim McDonnell, who was the offensive coordinator at Washington State, had Montana ties and recruited the Montana area. So that's how it all kind of played out. I took trips to Miami, Colorado State, Colorado, and Washington State. And uh, 
I canceled a couple others. I canceled one to Oregon and I canceled one to UCLA. It, fun story about my commitment. I was watching the Rose Bowl, uh, 1994 Rose Bowl, Wisconsin, UCLA. Yeah. And I get a phone call and it's Mike Price, the head coach at Washington State. And he says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm watching the Rose Bowl coach. He goes, I'll make you a deal. You come here and play for me. We'll play in that game together. And I just, for whatever reason, wow. it was a simple thing. I bought it, hook, line, and sinker. I walked into mom and dad's bedroom, and they were watching the game in there. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to Washington State. And they just kind of looked at each other and then looked at me and said, okay. And uh, I think they liked the idea that it was close enough, but it was far enough away for me to showcase my independence. And, you know, I hadn't done any research. I didn't realize they hadn't been to a Rose Bowl since 1931. So it was <laughs> like this giant leap of faith, right? And then – this is stories dear to my heart because we just saw the passing of, of, of Terry Donahue here this yeah. last summer. Um, Terry called me or I called him a week later to tell him I was canceling my visit to, to Los Angeles and that I was going to sign with Washington state. And he's, he was so kind and respectful. He said, I, I respect your decision, Ryan and everything. And I kind of told him the story about Mike Price. And he's like, just full disclosure, you know, I would have loved to have called you and, and told you that we'll play in that game together, Ryan, but, I was coaching in that game <laughs> and to, to his, to his, to his blessing. It, it was the truth. And, uh, but it was, it was the best decision I made. I went and played for a man who taught me how to be a quarterback, uh, really taught me how to play the position. That's fantastic. And it's a little different than today, right? You're following some of this recruiting today. Yours was you walked into your parents' bedroom and told them it was a phone call. Now it's broadcast over social media and, yeah. YouTube videos of guys committing. I'm sure yours wasn't quite as glamorous. No, it was the picture we have. Uh, I got home from basketball practice. I was, I was in my basketball practice Jersey uh, with just a God awful haircut and um, signing the letter of intent because my dad needed it to take to work in the morning so he could fax it in. Yep. And that was, that was it. And uh, away, away we went to Washington state, you know, that, that was the hoopla people in Montana were pissed that I didn't stay in Montana and the state of Washington really didn't know too much about me, except I was being called baby Bledsoe. That was the, the yeah. nickname I was being given. Um, so there were a ton of expectations walking onto campus in 1994. Well, that's a perfect jumping off point for our first break. When we get back, we'll talk to Ryan about baby, being baby Bledsoe at Washington state, an incredible career, and I'll spoiler alert, he does take him to the Rose Bowl for the first time in 67 years. We'll be right back with Ryan Lee. Hi, football fans. Trent Dilfer here to tell you that NFLSundayTicket.tv is like having front row seats to every live out-of-market game every Sunday afternoon, no matter where you live. That's a lot of football. And guess what? This season, you get even more football than ever before. 18 weeks of NFL glory right there in your front room. Stream to your favorite device. Just picture it. You put your feet up, kick back, eat snacks. Oh, yeah. And stream an insane amount of football. So make your seat a front row seat and catch every second of your favorite players and your favorite teams every Sunday afternoon. To see if you are eligible, go online to NFLSundayTicket.tv slash SundayReady and stream every NFL Sunday ticket game this season to follow your favorite team no matter where you live. Use promo code DILFER2021 at checkout to save 15%. Exclusive student discounts also available. All right, Ryan, you, you show up at Wazoo here at Washington State. You talked about how the people in Montana were pissed. People in Washington didn't know you. They're calling you baby Bledsoe. Where did you start on the depth chart? I'm very bottom, right? I mean, you're being <laughs> wooed by everybody uh, in the recruiting process. When you walk onto campus, you're like, you know, where's the, the you, know, you know, band and the red carpet and everything. It was like, no, your, your workouts are at 6 a.m. Um, I, got, I got games to win, Brian. I'm sorry, but we can't, we can't think about you right now. I was, you know, told right away, you're, you're redshirting, you know, and that's the way it, way it went. And so I was... I was kind of stunned, you know, just like any freshman. And during camp, you know, you get hazed a little bit. And one of the hazings for me was when you're in the cafeteria, you know, the, the upperclassmen ask you to stand up and hold your tray and sing the fight song. And I remember doing that. And one of the senior uh, offensive linemen or whatever, you know, 
pantsed me, right? You know, in the cafeteria, holding my tray, singing the fight song. And I was so embarrassed and so upset that like my parents, and this was like literally the day after my parents dropped me off and they stuck around for a couple of days to make sure I got settled and watched practice a little bit. And I remember walking over to their hotel afterwards going, mom and dad, I think I made the, the war. I made a terrible mistake. I made a terrible mistake. I need to go back home to Montana and where I'm safe and sound. And luckily for me, my father was like, he kept things in perspective because Brian, you know where I was at, at, at 19. And I just kind of looked at it. And it's like, you know, I, I was about, you know, I was about ready to, to head over and, and, and go to Vietnam, you know? So let's, Let's keep some things in perspective here, son. And he's always been good about that in terms of, and it's what I've used later in my life because of some of my struggles when I'm talking to other people, you know, keeping things in perspective. I went back to work. Um, I became the scout team quarterback that year. And our defense was the number one defense in the country, the Palouse Posse, they were called. Mm -hmm. And I believe we played you guys my freshman year. Mm -hmm. I can't remember if you were the quarterback or not. I, I just le I I left in nine at the end of '93 season, but I yep. do remember that game. Yes, you had just left, and uh, we played Fresno State that that freshman year. But I was the scout team quarterback all year long, and the defense was the number one team uh, defensive team in the country, and I got to go against them every day in practice. And offensively, we struggled. Defensively, we had all eleven guys would go on and play professionally. All eleven starters. That's how good they were. And I went against him every day in practice. And it's probably to this day the best thing that could have happened to me. Now, they clamored for me to become the, the quarterback and, and for Coach to burn my red shirt and to play because the defense was good enough for us to be a Rose Bowl caliber football team. Offensively, we just we couldn't put any points on the board. And, uh, um, and I sat on the bench and redshirted that entire year. And uh, I remember going to the Alamo Bowl that year and going through the practices and me and my infinite wisdom, speaking to a reporter uh, while I was down there making the comment, like, like if I don't get a, a solid shot to be the starter next year, I'm going to, I'm going to look, look some other places. Right. So if the, <laughs> so like if the transfer portal would have existed, you were then, in it, yeah, I was probably going to be in it. You know, I felt like, but what coach knew and I didn't is that I wasn't ready. A, I wasn't ready to lead a, a team of men. That's, that's the biggest thing. My maturity was not, not there. Now my talent was, but how do you rein that in and how do you make it? Um, because they were going to need me to be a leader uh, on that football team period as the quarterback. And he knew I wasn't ready uh, that freshman year. And he knew I needed uh, more seasoning, more time and more humility. I want to dig a little bit deeper in that because you, as you were talking, a couple of things hit my brain. Number one, we're going to dive into this perspective thing, but let's give some perspective to a senior right now listening, watching this show. He's the big dog on campus. He's the three, four, five star. Everything's going his way. He's winning a bunch of ball games. It's football season right now. He's winning a bunch of ball games. People are pouring perfume all over him. He's committed to go to his said power five school, thinking that it's going to be uh, all farts and giggles when he gets there. Uh, and that person needs perspective that they're going into a shark tank, right, with a bunch of great whites. There's seven, eight other quarterbacks in that quarterback room that he's going into next year at his college, and they don't want him to get a shot. I love what you said. You just went to work after the initial embarrassment and hazing and dad setting things in place for you. You just went to work to climb that depth chart. Um, dive into a little bit. This is your chance to kind of give your leadership talk. Like, what is that like for that senior and, and how does he handle his freshman year in college and what principles will hold up uh, as he starts climbing that depth chart? Yeah, there's some humility in this um, mm -hmm. that you have to be aware that's coming, right? The understanding that you were the big man on campus in high school, but life changes and life comes at you quick. And it's not, it's not, uh, what happens it's how you deal with that mm -hmm. that's the biggest thing i can say in terms of leadership and, and there's, it's something i struggled with for a long long time because uh, i would blame others or i would never really take any kind of accountability like i'm like this is what it is you can't control any of what the coach is going to do all you can control ryan is what you do every day in practice because the opportunity that was presented to me was to go against the number one defense in the country every day and there were days that i would win and i would dominate and it got to a point where the, the final day of practice before the Apple Cup, 
Uh, and this story was written and talked about Bill Doble, the defensive coordinator, watched his defense pick me up and like carry me off the field because of, of how I competed against him that year. I wasn't playing in any games, right? I wasn't getting a chance to, to contribute. Um, you know, I, I tried to be part of the team. I knew I wasn't going to play. I still would dress out for the game so I could be a part of it. Um, and then on, on weekdays, you know, I tried to be the scout team player of the week every week. That was, that was the goal for me. That's what was ahead of me. That's what I could control. And so, therefore, that's what I did. I think it's incredible. I think it's something that every person needs to understand more uh, at a deeper level. And Steve Young said something when we talked to him. He said, you, know, you never can go around it. You have to go through it. Uh, I always say you have to find hard things and be uncomfortable if you're going to find greatness. Uh, but so many kids these days in your situation, uh, that freshman year, like you said, jump into the portal. They find the easy way. It's not going their way. And you said something too. You said your coaches knew something you didn't. Yes, talent-wise, you could have played, but you weren't ready for the gravity of the position. And, and so many young players didn't And I don't think I was ready to fail, Trent. Like, yeah. he, he knew that. Like, he, he knew how sensitive I was to if I were to go out and play poorly, if I would be able to recover from that. I needed, yeah. I needed some hardening, some callousing to my personality, my, my way I went about things. And that's why he was such a great coach. That's why he, you know, why he coached Drew Bledsoe to be a, a number one overall pick and what he did, uh, you know, with me and then and every quarterback after that in his, in his tenure. Well, it obviously gets a lot better, right? You, you, you'd use that first year dominating on, special, on uh, scout team, earning the respect, trust of your teammates, coaches trying to put it in perspective. When you do get named the starter and you are ready to lead, uh, talk us through that magical, that magical time at Washington State and what it was like and then ultimately taking that team to the Rose Bowl. Well, I needed one more humbling. Uh, in the offseason between my freshman and sophomore years, I got a DUI, a mini DUI, they call it, for an underage guy in, in Washington. And it was embarrassing, and it just showcased again to Coach Price that, you know, he's just not mature enough. So it was another, um, you know, slap in the face to, to my teammates and, and my coaches that, that I wasn't taking this seriously enough. And so, it, you know, I had to take a good look in the mirror, and I didn't become the starter my freshman, my redshirt freshman year right away. But late in the year when we had struggled enough and I had worked my tail off as the backup quarterback, not playing, um, coach gave me the opportunity against Stanford. And then ultimately the next week in my first start against the University of Washington. And I played my guts out and uh, I was prepared and I knew what was expected of me and I knew what we were trying to accomplish. And I played great football and I, I would then start every game for the remainder of my career at Washington state. But it, it, you know, it just, it takes what it takes, you know, uh, it really does. And those are the things that it took for me to get to where I was at that point. And I think it made me more respected in that locker room because I wasn't just handed something. Um, they know how talented I was, but I just, as a person, they were like, dude needs to grow up needs to, how can we leave, How can we follow this guy when, when, uh, you know, he can't truly be a leader and, and that, that had to happen. And so that's what occur, occurred. And we came out of the gate my, my sophomore year and we were five and two and we were out ready to go to a bowl game. And we added a bunch of weapons on the offensive side of the football in terms of JC transfers, the running back position, the wide receiver position. And, and then we just hit this wall, right? Five and two. And for the final four games of the year, we would lose two games in overtime and another play at the buzzer, I think, and go go five and five and six, miss out on a bowl game. Another thing that was the best thing that happened to us because we were so close. We lost so many close games that when we went into that off season, we were, we were like, that's never going to happen again. We're not, we're not going to be the team that loses the tight games. We're going to be the ones that finish in the fourth quarter and everybody stuck around in the summer, me and all my wide receivers, we'd get up and lift, go throw, and then we'd go play golf the entire day. It was so fun to take some of my buddies, especially from South central LA to the middle of the wheat fields in Idaho and spend the whole day golfing. And in fact, a couple of them kept up the game and we go on trips now all the time together to play golf because of what that summer brought to us. And we opened the year against UCLA. Coach had moved this game from November because of an ABC slot, asked UCLA if they were willing to move it to the beginning, end of August. And of course they jumped at it because who wants to come to Pullman in November and play? 
And they did. ABC, Keith Jackson, uh, Dick Vermeil, Lynn Swan, everybody, 1230 p.m. Yeah. And, you know, we balled out. Uh, I threw for more yards than I ever throw for, three touchdowns. Had a wrecked ankle in the second quarter, came out after my backup threw a pick. I, w- I came back in and, and, uh, and we found a way to win and, and we beat UCLA. Good story about that. We beat them. The next weekend, Peyton Manning and Tennessee came into the Rose Bowl and beat them. And then Cade McNown and that UCLA team would not lose a game for like 26 consecutive games after that. So uh, they were a very good football team. And I think that we getting them early that year made a difference because if we would have played them in November, I don't know. They were a juggernaut. We beat SC the next week, the week after that. And we had done that in 40 years to go down to the Coliseum and beat them there. Then we went on the road and played Illinois and coach did another thing, trying to get us more recognition. ESPN two had just launched. We were asked if we would play a 9am Pacific body clock game for their opening weekend of ESPN two football kickoff at in Champaign against Illinois. Coach said, yeah, let's do it. So we open up at 9am Pacific time clock on our bodies and I throw an 80 yard touchdown on the first play of the game and it's off and running. And then we just dominated throughout the rest of the year. Um, all of a sudden I was getting seen as, as one of the best quarterbacks in the country. All of a sudden people were talking about me for the Heisman trophy and then the NFL, uh, a goal of mine was always to play in the NFL, of course. But I mean, I think that's a lot of people's dreams and goals and it never truly comes to reality. You know, the 1% of the 1% mentality, but I just knew that I loved what I was getting to do. And that was to play football with these guys. And uh, we went through the whole year until the final game of the season against Washington. And if we beat them at their place, uh, we would go to the Rose Bowl and be Pac-10 champions. And in my way was that Washington defense and uh, a face I'd seen uh, for the the three years, really the last three years in the Apple Cup. And that was a Heward. This time it was Brock. Damon was the quarterback in my first start ever in Apple Cup. Brock would be the the quarterback in my last start ever uh, in, in, in the Apple Cup. And uh, we just dominate. I was just unconscious at one point. I remember going to the completely wrong side of the field on a read and throwing a backside post, which is normally my fourth in my progression because I saw it. I just let it go. It was like my eighth completion in a row. And I remember the receiver coming back to the huddle going, dude, you, you hadn't thrown me that ball all year long. And I said, yeah, I went the wrong way, man. And I just saw you flash and I let it go. It, we were just in a zone. We were an incredibly good football team defensively, offensively, uh, just loaded with seniors and we had worked really, really hard. And, uh, I got a ton of credit that year, but I mean, I was just a piece uh, of that puzzle. And then we got to go on to the Rose bowl and play for the national championship against Michigan and Charles Woodson. And I finished yeah. third in the Heisman trophy. I got to represent Montana, got to represent Washington state and all my teammates there. That was the coolest thing about that night and be there with my dad, you know, my dad was 47 at the time. I'm 45 right now with a four-year-old at home. And I'm just thinking like, how freaking cool would that have been to be a 47-year-old dad going to the Heisman Trophy with your yeah. son, seeing all your heroes and everything like that? And that's what it was. Uh, I come home like at like 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning uh, on the night of the Heisman Trophy. I knew I wasn't going to win. I went to Saturday Night Live with Coach Price and then went to a bar with all the former winners and, and everybody and had a blast. And I looked up and I locked, my dad was gone. And so I walk into the downtown athletic club at like two or three in the morning and there's a piano down in the lobby and all the former winners are, are circled around. There's Tony Dorsett and Archie Griffith and Tim Brown and just a bunch of former winners. And they're all sitting around a piano, like singing karaoke, singing fight songs, playing the piano, singing piano songs. And like right in the middle is John Leaf, my dad. And it, to this day, it's, it almost, it gives me, uh, chills because I'm just like, it's the coolest thing that football ever gave me to see my dad get to experience that, that night, uh, and to share it together. That's, uh, cause he's my hero. Right. So to watch that play out is pretty, pretty special. That's incredible. Hey, before we get to our next break, I, I want you to, you, you know, your off the field struggles have been well documented. We're going to get into them and let you tell your story. I know you've really uh, championed a lot of things for the last 10 years trying to help people through your struggles. But do you see any patterns? Have you self-reflected and seen any patterns from your time at Washington State and being a star that may have led 
to some of your off the field struggles when you got to the NFL and post NFL career? Yeah, I think just identity. Yeah. Um, like I was better than you because of what you did because of what I did and the pedestal I got placed on. Right. I mean, when I first got to campus, I was like everybody else. I was the best athlete, best football player from their set high school. And we were together working for a thing together, but that pedestal started to rise. And then it became difficult for me to go to class on campus. Right. People would stop me and it just became a thing. And then that inflated that already sizable ego I had, but I like to tell people that I, I, I was an egomaniac with a self-esteem problem. Like it, it just, it teetered on if there was any kind of failure or less than or judgment, I really struggled with that. And what had benefited me in all this is that I'd always won. I'd won a championship at high school. I'd won a championship in college. And I just figured it would be the same when I got to the NFL. So those things were already there. And my mom knew about it. She, she'd seen my attitude and my personality my whole life and knew that there would be a time where life would get incredibly hard. But her biggest worry is that it would be on the, the biggest stage possible because of where I was headed. And that was always something that she feared a lot and, and something I thought would never happen. Yeah, well, that was powerful. I, I, I'm glad you shared that because I, I see that a lot these days. I see kids that are having a lot of success um, not know how to deal with success. And that is an alarm uh, or it's a warning sign that when they go through some really hard stuff, they're definitely not going to be able to handle that. So um, appreciate you sharing that. When we come back from this break, we'll get into Ryan's uh, draft process, um, being an early round pick, everything associated with that, his career in the NFL, uh, and then some of the stuff we touched on there, some off the field struggles, but how he's uh, really come out of that in, a, in, a, in an awesome way. And we'll let him share that. We'll be right back. Visa, a network working for everyone. Overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small business lead their teams to victory all year long. Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help grow their businesses and help them achieve even greater success. Because the more people we can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network working for everyone. All right, back with Ryan Leaf. He ends up uh, being a high-round draft choice. Before we talk about that actual day, what was that pre-draft process like? Because now most of the people watching, they see it. Well, when you went through the pre-draft process, it's got to be on ESPN, right? They had to do a show about you. You have to be on every talk radio show. It wasn't that way when you came out. Talk to us a little bit about it. Well, you're right. It wasn't. Um, But I was about to be drafted alongside what people would consider one of the greatest to play ever play in Peyton Manning. So yep. it was a, almost a good versus evil. Who's better. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever you have two quarterbacks at the top, that comparison uh, always gets played out. Uh, my predecessor at Washington state, Drew Bledsoe and Rick Meyer had to go through that process on who would be drafted first and all the pressures that come with it. And so and I, I kind of wore the black hat just because, uh, you know, I came from, a, you know, the island of misfit toys, which is what, what people looked at as Washington State and what we had accomplished and everything like that. So instead of during the pre-draft process, like correcting the narrative and saying, hey, you know, that's not me. I'm not that guy. I'm just this, you know, redneck from Montana who loves to play sports and wants to be liked. That's, that's who I was. But I had kind of watched Dennis Rodman do what he had done and thought that was okay. Like I was better than everybody else. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm just going to be, uh, and I'm certainly not Peyton Manning. I'm not what I considered the golden child in, in others' eyes. And I'm going to, I'm going to wreck, wreck shop. And, uh, and that's the way I went about it. You know, I didn't treat people with a lot of respect. I just said, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And, and I, even so far as to when Indianapolis was inquiring about, the possible first pick me telling them, no, I'm, I don't want to go to middle America. I want to go to the beach uh, with the babes and the money. That's, that's what I want. I wasn't looking at the right things. You know, I wasn't looking at the right things in terms of Marvin Harrison's out on the perimeter, Marshall Falks in the backfield. I, I wasn't thinking about that stuff. I really wasn't, which was terrible. I had family on the West coast. I played on the West coast. I thought that would just, would be the right fit. And also maybe because I wanted to control a little bit, 
of, of the situation. And my agent, Lee Steinberg, was all on board and, and, and trying to help facilitate that. And sure enough, you know, I don't think it really mattered. Uh, I think Indianapolis was pretty settled in, in going with Peyton and, and it was the right choice, right? Um, I got to, to San Diego. I worked my tail off. I was in the film room all the time. June Jones and I were, were trying to build something and, and we walked out into week one and uh, against the Buffalo Bills and uh, we beat them. And the next week we went to Tennessee and we beat them. And no rookie quarterback had done that since John Elway in 1983. Peyton had struggled in his first two games. And again, I walked back home and after that game thinking, you know what? I'm winning this. This is exactly what I was going to do. Then, you know, the Kansas City game happens. And it's the worst football game I've ever played. Statistically, everything. I was in the hospital all week with a staph infection that I got while uh, in Tennessee playing in that game. Tried to play. Uh, completed my first pass of the game. Would be the only pass that I completed. It was a monsoon. Uh, Rich Gannon was the quarterback for Kansas City. He didn't play very well either. But I went one for 15 for four yards. I think two picks and three fumbles and was sacked a bunch of times. Just awful. Awful. And when I walked off that field, I was so ashamed and so embarrassed uh, and had an interaction with a uh, cameraman in the locker room where I wasn't very kind. And, uh, and it was reported by one of the reporters the next day in the newspaper. So um, I confronted that reporter and talked to him about, hey, this is a relationship that has to be built on trust. Um, you know, the locker room has to feel somewhat of a sanctuary. And, you know, we're gonna be working together for a while. And, you know, he just, he kind of baited me with like, I don't, I don't care what you think this is, Ryan, I'm going to report the news, right? And I did what I'd always done my whole life. And that's try to be big, strong, intimidating football player. And I grabbed his ass and I threw him into a chair. And I stood over the top of him, my six foot, you know, six, 250 pound frame and, you know, really mother effed him up and down. A cameraman in the corner flipped it around, got it on video. And it's kind of become a caricature of who I was. Junior Seau would come in, grab me, take me to the shower, flip on the cold shower. But that was replayed over and over and over and over again. I would then be asked um, by many to apologize the next day. And my dad helped me write an apology. And that too was videotaped. And it looked like some petulant child. Like he, I did not want to be reading it, right? And I just kind of flip it into the locker. And of course, that played into it. The defensive nature with the with the media from that point on, and I can honestly tell you that my career ended that day. Now I would play for four more years, but I never remember another good thing happening. And it wasn't because of how I played. Everybody has their rookie moment. It was how I dealt with it. And if you remember correctly, how I talked about the leadership thing in, in college about. Doesn't matter what happens, it's it's how you deal with it that matters. And I dealt with it like shit. And I kept digging myself further in. And whenever I got confronted or addressed or anything and backed myself into a corner, I would fight my way out and I'd always win. NFL is a different story. It's the best of the best. And if you're fighting with your teammates, the media, everybody from Sunday to Sunday, your central nervous system is just on tilt the whole time. And you are not prepared. And I followed it up with a four interception game against the new uh, New York giants. The next week, they ran a make a wish foundation commercial on the big screen and the crowd booted. So that's where we were at. And I didn't help myself at all the rest of that year fighting with coaches, teammates, media. They fired my head coach in week five. I threw two touchdowns and 15 interceptions. I mean, it was, it's different if I would have played well, people can deal with boorish behavior. If you, if you play well in the NFL, that's the, that's the, the odor masker that there is, right? Uh, I just, I didn't do both. I acted like a child and uh, I played poorly. And so um, that's how my career started. And I was on to a new head coach by year two, wrecked my arm in a practice, tore my labor, missed the entire second year, which is where you're supposed to make your biggest jump. Got suspended at one time, got caught playing flag football uh, during that suspension. I mean, the decision-making and choices by my warped mind 
is, is the reason why I, I didn't have a long career in the NFL. It wasn't because I wasn't talented enough. It was, it was because I couldn't live life on life's terms as an NFL quarterback. I couldn't live life on life's terms as a regular human being. You add the fact that you're an NFL quarterback, there was no shot for me at all. I want to dig into two things there. I got a million directions. I'm sure the audience wants me to go. I want to go. But when you were going through the pre-draft process, and you talked about your mom really feared some things and you weren't treating people with respect and um, just had some personality issues. I know I'm putting, not trying to put words in your mouth, but kind of encapsulating what you said. Did you have anybody besides your parents speak into that? Did you have other mentors? Did you have other um, figures in your life that, I know your parents did, but tried to slow you down and maybe give you a forecast of what was coming if you didn't fix that? No, I didn't. Um, yeah. You know, when Lee Steinberg signed me, Steve Young, he had Steve Young and Troy Aikman and Warren Moon and Drew Bledsoe all call me and they were, um, you know, and when things started to go bad, you know, guys did reach out. Like Terry Bradshaw reached out, John Elway reached out. Um, and then I had you know, two of the greatest mentors you could possibly have in San Diego and Junior Seo and Rodney Harrison. I just, I'd never seen or heard a man be vulnerable or transparent about anything my whole life. Growing up in Montana, cowboy culture, in NFL locker rooms and college locker rooms, I never heard another man go, hey, I'm really struggling here. Can you guys help me? And so I didn't know how to do that. And then when I was asked to go see a sports psychologist, I thought I was broken or I thought I was, I said, that's bullshit. I'm, I'm fine. You're the one that's messed up. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't willing. And so, you know, unfortunately, because I, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a great football player because I love playing. It's my favorite thing in the world to do. And it given me so much. I just, I wasn't capable of dealing with everything else that came with that. If it would have just been playing football, that's what I'd, I'd always been good at that. The interaction, the personality, the behavior and stuff like that, that's where I had always struggled. And I was just going to have to be taught a different lesson. I was going to have to be humbled in a different way to become the, the person I needed to become. And no matter how difficult that was, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for it. So I, the only reason I agreed to do this podcast was so people could learn from it, right? I know all you guys, I know your stories, but I want other people to hear these stories and learn from them. Uh, there's somebody right now watching this that grew up in a culture where being vulnerable and being transparent, being honest about where they're at is not welcomed. Um, they're going to head down a very similar road that you went down. And I went down to a similar degree too. What would you tell that person right now? They're 18, they're 19, they're 20, they're 23, they're 33. Who cares? They have never met with somebody about their mental health. They've never listened to their mentors. They've never expressed the demons they're fighting inside. What would you tell that person? I would tell them that, you know, that, that it's going to be okay, but, um, asking for help is the strongest thing I ever did. Yep. And I think that uh, when I tell that story to people about what's the most thing, what's the, the thing I'm proudest of, I think people just assume like, you know, you were an NFL quarterback. You were the number two overall pick. That, aren't you proud of that? And I'm like, yeah, of course I am. But I mean, the hardest thing I've done and the proudest thing I am is, is, is finally becoming accountable for, for who I am, becoming sober, uh, and, and addressing my mental, mental health. And that was about vulnerability and, mm. and recovery. That's the proudest thing I am of anything I'll ever do. And it's going to allow me to be a better friend, husband, and father than, than I ever would have been had I not gone through what I'd gone through. And I remember that final stop with you in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And really, before camp starting, feeling uh, sad all the time. Um, tired and lazy and I couldn't get out of bed and I, I I had ballooned up in weight and I was so fearful of coming to camp overweight and the embarrassment of that uh, and instead of walking into Mike Holmgren's office and telling him all of those things that hey you know I'm, I'm sad all the time I don't know what's wrong I can't get out of bed I feel lazy 
I just, I just said, I quit. I'm done. I'm going to retire. And it's the thing I'd wanted to do my whole life. I feel like if I would have went in and told him that you played for him, you knew the man he is. And I feel like he would have been responsive to that and said, okay, Ryan, let's, let's figure it out. Let's get you some help. And maybe I, I live up to some expectations and I'm the one starting uh, quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks and Super Bowl 40, you know, yeah. but I, I didn't, I just, I quit and I walked away because I'd never seen it before. And the stigma that existed around mental illness uh, was still strong and is, is still strong that, that uh, I wasn't capable and uh, I had to um, figure it out. And uh, that journey would become um, one that was incredibly difficult, but worthwhile um, because of it. And we'll end with that. But before we do, I'll let you go anywhere you want to go with it. Did you start seeing patterns um, as you were going through your adversity um, as a starting quarterback for the Chargers? Uh, were you coping in such a way that was distractive? Did some of the patterns start showing up? Uh, during those days? Yeah, I, I think that uh, I surrounded myself with people that, that uh, wouldn't hold me accountable, right? The people that truly care about you are usually the ones showing you the mirror. Um, coaches, family, mentors. The ones that are telling you that you're right and you're the victim and it's not your yep. fault, yep. those are the guys that like the, the ride they're on with you. They see you as the golden goose. Uh, they weren't going to interrupt this, this awesome time in their lives, right? And when I speak to high school kids and college kids, uh, when I'm out speaking, it's, it's, it's something as cliche as this, but it, uh, you show me your friends and I'm going to show you your future. It's, it's the God honest truth. And it's who you surround yourself with. And later in life, um, especially when after, after I got out of prison, Trent, I, I surrounded myself with men that had lives that I wanted. Like I saw them have peaceful, unchaotic lives and I wanted that. And I went and asked them how they got it. And I followed their direction verbatim. And, uh, um, and, and like I said, I had, I had guys like you and, and junior and Rodney, uh, Darren Woodson down in, in Dallas, um, that whole, that whole crew and Tony Dungy in Tampa. And I just did not, I, I just, I made everything still about me rather than, um, you know, utilizing what you guys have gone through and got to the place. You know, when I talk to kids entering the draft all the time too, I tell them exactly what I did in my recovery aspect. I said, walk into a locker room, find a guy who's played eight, 10 years, go ask him how he did it and then follow their, their direction verbatim. That's, you're not the smartest guy in the room when you get to the NFL. You know, you were extremely talented in college, but guess what? It starts all over again. It's not going to be nearly as easy as you thought it was going to be. All right, in our remaining time, I'm going to let's just go um, on all this stuff that's been well documented. Uh, you can take it any direction you want. I do want to tell people you went back and earned your college degree, so you were making strides to go back and, and change your life. You touched on a little bit there. You found better support group, found better friends, had mentors. But I don't even know how to ask the question, to be honest with you. That's why I'm just letting you go. Like, where were the darkest times? What did you actually do? And how did you pull yourself out? And what are you doing now? Well, I mean, I went back and did a lot of those things. But what had, what had happened and what I didn't realize is that I had become addicted uh, to a substance. Um, you know, we took painkillers our entire career, Trent, to get from week to week. And it was heroic. And I, I, it, by doing so, you were looked well upon within your crowd because you were doing things to be able to play on a Sunday for your teammates. Those are my words, not your words, but I know that was the culture of the NFL. It was. And I also knew it worked, right? Yep. I had physical pain. It, it went away so I could do what I wanted to do. Well, now I was living with emotional pain of feeling like a failure, uh, you know, feeling like I hadn't accomplished enough being judged all the time. And I went to Vegas for a fight about three months after I had quit because I just assumed I would get on with my life, right? I, now I, I distanced myself from the NFL and the judgment and everything, but that, that doesn't happen. My name won't go away because Peyton had the career that he did and we were drafted alongside one another. And every April, my name gets brought up as a failure. 
uh, and I believed it. And we were in Vegas for a fight, and the MC was announcing uh, celebrities in the audience, and there was Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, and the audience just cheered and clapped, and they announced my name, and the whole MGM Grand just booed and hissed. And it's not like that hadn't happened before. You know, we play in opposing team stadium. We get booed all the time. It's just that we have this armor on and uh, shoulder pads and helmet. And we just, it almost feels emboldened a little. And sure enough, somebody offered me some Vicodin that night. And I mixed it with the alcohol I was drinking when I was going to these parties where there were Super Bowl heroes and Hall of Famers where I always felt less than and judged. And it worked. I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel any of that. It didn't make me feel better. I just didn't feel any of it. And I think I've been searching for that for a long time, just not to feel anything. Um, and that would be the, the next eight years of my life, searching for that, that feeling of, of not feeling. To a point where I'm back in my hometown where I'm supposed to be the hero because I'm the only Montanan who's ever been drafted in the, in the first round of the NFL draft. Instead, I'm living in a little mother-in-law's apartment, waking up every morning thinking, do I have pills? And if I don't, how do I get them? Enough so that I would start breaking the law and going into people's homes and stealing them. Uh, and every night I would look in the mirror and, and see the junkie, um, but know that it was a vicious cycle because I knew I was shameful and guilty and all these things. But if I took this medication, I didn't feel any of that. So I just searched and searched and searched for the, the feeling of not feeling that. And that was to the ends justified the means, whatever that looked like. And if any of you have ever been addicted to anything or have known somebody who's been addicted, you can't do it on your own. You, you just can't get out of that on your own because it's the only answer you know and the only way and direction you can go. So luckily for me, all those nights that I looked in the mirror and begged for help um, to nobody but myself, you know, my higher power uh, heard me over and over and finally said, dude does not get it. I'm going to send the sheriff's department to help him. And that's what happened. And they arrested me. And I would spend 32 months in prison. I tell people all the time I was a drug addict long before I ever took a drug because this would put it to a test. Like the drug was removed from my system, but I was still that drug addict. I was angry. I was judgmental. I was fearful. I was more miserable than you could imagine. I didn't do anything. Sat on my ass for 26 of the 32 months. Got fat. You know, just thought this was the best place for me you know no drama for the family for the community anything it's the most selfish act i could i could do especially with my family and everything around that and uh um and nothing changed right it wasn't a deterrent uh, it's just another society in our in our country it's the highest we're the highest populated prison system in the world um and i didn't do anything to better myself and luckily again my my higher power showed up in the form of my roommate and he was an Afghan Iraqi war veteran. Uh, and he had done something I think a lot of people have done in their lives. And that's drive drunk one night. And he just happened to kill somebody. And uh, he'd been there for eight years. And he had made amends for what he had done. He wasn't resolute with being that version of himself. And he tried to better himself every single day. And I just thought it was idiotic. I'm like, look at us. We're losers. We're in prison. We're, we're a number, you know? And one day he felt comfortable enough to confront me. And he said that uh, I didn't understand the value that I had, not only in there, but for when I got out. And he suggested we go down to the prison library and help prisoners who didn't know how to read, learn how to read. And, you know, I've had many of those come to Jesus moments, Trent. Coaches, family, mentors. I can't tell you why in that moment I acquiesced, but I, I did. Still begrudgingly, I remember walking down the hallway kicking like metaphorical rocks with my feet in a red jumpsuit in a prison thinking this is stupid. This isn't going to help me. Doesn't he know how important I am? The irony that the guy in a prison red, red jumpsuit thinks he's important is, is, is asinine as it can be. But I went and I walked into this room where there were these men where you're supposed to show zero vulnerability, ask me for help because they couldn't read. And that had to change my perspective on a lot because I'd never seen it. And I showed up every day to help them. And what it turned out to be was me being of service to another human being for the first time in my life. I used to think what I did on Saturdays and Sundays was me being of service, but 
that's, that's not true at all. It's silly to think. And I started going back every single day to do that. You just don't go to the gym one day and then the next day you look like the rock, right? You, it's about consistency and it's a 180 life, 180 degree lifestyle change. And so that's, that's what happened. And when I walked out of that prison cell, December 3rd, 2014 with nothing, nothing, I didn't have a job. I didn't have money. I didn't have prospects, girl, anything. I had this hope and it had come from what I had done in prison there being of service. And that was going to be the foundation. And that's what the foundation has been for the last, you know, almost seven years, Trent, since I've been out. It's been about, it's been about not me. It's been about other people. And in doing that, my life has gotten better, which is ironic when I don't make it about me, my life gets better is amazing, right? I found a, a, a wonderful woman who has become my partner in life and given me the greatest thing that I'll ever I'll ever do. And, and that's a little boy. And um, the journey I've been able to go on and try to be of service to people out there and speak and tell my story and be transparent and vulnerable. And um, I feel more purposeful than I ever, I think, would have having played 20 years and won a couple Super Bowls. I really do. Um, and that's where I'm at right now. And so when people such as yourselves call and say, Hey, can we have you on to, to talk about it? You know, I'm going to be emotionally exhausted when I'm done with this. Um, but I know that there's going to be somebody that hears it, that they needed to hear it. And it may change the trajectory in their, in their situation. I don't want anybody to ever be as miserable as I was. You know, I could tell the, the kids all the time. I, I don't need somebody to come along and be a high draft pick and fail and be a bust. Like, I don't want anybody to ever be that I'm competitive. I'm the number one guy. I'll always be the number one guy and I'm okay with that. So, uh, and probably closing here, it doesn't, it doesn't cost you anything to, to be self-deprecating or, or, or have your ability to be, uh, you know, accountable for what you've done and how you fix it. I think that was incredibly eye-opening for me when I finally said, Hey, you know, Ryan, you're here because of what you've done and nobody else. I no longer could blame anybody. You know, I blame the NFL. I blame the media. I blame my family, my hometown, everybody for so long. But when it's all on you, all you can do is fix it. And the only way to fix it is to take accountability. And, uh, and when you do screw up, because I do screw up all the time still, I'm a new dad. Um, you know, you make amends for it uh, and, and you move forward knowing that things are going to get better if you continue to do the next right thing. And so, you know, that's it. That's, that's the short version of this, uh, of this story. And uh, I'm incredibly grateful. I didn't think I'd ever be able to stand in front of a room full of people or on a podcast or anything and tell people that I was grateful for having spent 32 months in prison. I don't recommend it, <laughs> but I am incredibly grateful for it, Trent. That's for sure. Well, Ryan, thank you. Uh, powerful. My big takeaways, be transparent, be honest with people. Um, hard yeah, it doesn't are, cost you anything. It doesn't yeah. cost you anything to do that. And I think for the longest time of, around the sport we played, we thought it cost us something in terms yeah. of like masculinity, this toxic masculinity that exists. Like you can't be um, sensitive around things. You can be a Tasmanian devil on the football field and still be, this, still be a good person. If you're hurting inside, tell somebody, find help. Yep. How you handle success will ultimately dictate how you handle failure. So if you're not handling success well, um, check yourself. I loved how you talked about when you felt like you had nothing to offer, service is what got you out of it. Yep. Um, so often people don't think they have anything to give, so they don't serve when really that's how we're designed is to serve. Um, just so much great stuff. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Uh, this is why we're doing this pod yeah. is for stories like this. So people can listen, uh, have perspective. You talked about perspective. I mean, this whole podcast is perspective um, so they can learn from it. And there's people out there because you're vulnerable, because you took the time to do it, because this is your passion now that I guarantee you there's someone that's going to watch this and that the trajectory of their life is going to change because of you making it not about you. And I'll end that way. It's not about you people. It's about something far greater than you. And, and Ryan Leaf just told you all about that. So 
Uh, thank you, Ryan. Appreciate your friendship and appreciate you doing this. Good to see you, buddy. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. See you. Bye. Man, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ryan Leaf as much as I did. And I hope you enjoyed the first season of Beyond the X's and O's as much as I did. Wow, a bunch of Hall of Fame quarterbacks and incredible stories. And most importantly, you got a little insight to the journey of the quarterback, not the hot takes that are done on mainstream media, but from their voices, kind of what their journey playing quarterback has meant to them and the lessons learned. I hope you took as much away from it as I did. We're going to take a few weeks off. I'm in the heat of my coaching season. We're sitting here at Lipscomb Academy in Nashville, Tennessee, and we're trying to win a state championship. There's a bunch of coaches, a bunch of parents, a bunch of players that deserve my best and my full attention. So we'll be back in a few weeks. We're going to focus on some younger quarterbacks playing in the league and playing in college football and, and some coaches that are well-renowned for developing the quarterback, and many of them play quarterback themselves. So more good stuff on beyond the, beyond the X's and O's when we come back in season two.